Good morning. We are in our second week of a conversation this summer from the Old Testament prophets of Jonah and Nahum. And we're beginning today with chapter one of Jonah, which is just a spectacular story. Today we're going to dive into a really fundamental truth that it's critical for you and I and our spiritual development to cling to. So today is just about rehearsing one of the most fundamental truths for you and I and clinging to it. Those of you who've been part of Gateway for a while, you will remember we had the first funeral that we've ever had in our building, and it was for one of the godliest men I've ever known and a great friend and an elder in our church, Tom Bellino. And Tom died of cancer. In one of my last conversations with Tom, Tom was wondering with me how God was involved in this event in his life. He said, Ed, I, I don't feel like I'm hearing anything from God. And I keep wondering what he's doing and, and how he's involved with this. And I honestly understand Tom's question. I bet many of you do as well. I often feel that way. God, what are you doing? Are you there? How involved are you in this? You're my parent, so how involved are you in this? The story of the prophet Jonah has been a much-needed reminder to me this week. The author makes it very clear to us from the outset that God is intimately and lovingly involved in our world. There it is. That's the truth. That's the message of Jonah, the first message, and it's, it's one of the main underlying themes throughout the book. God is intimately and lovingly involved in our world, and it's a message that we desperately need to hear, we suburban Americans desperately need to hear. But it's a message that too easily gets dismissed by the likes of us. Some of us have had a relationship with Jesus for a long time. You grew up in Catholic school, and this is almost like cutting your teeth, this truth. Others of you went to a good little Baptist Sunday school, and you heard this your whole life. We need to be reminded, really for two reasons. Because number one, there are times when God seems to go radio silent. And number two, we also need to be reminded because we can get inoculated to this most basic truth. We get an anti-serum. We forget it. It loses its power. God is intimately and lovingly involved with our world, with us. Others of us don't have a meaningful connection to God. And for us, this truth is hard to get our minds around. Now, you may not be surprised by the fact that the author of Jonah believed it. That's what you expect from the Bible, after all. But this can be believed in any real way in the real world, and it makes any difference in our everyday lives. That's a stretch for some of us. So let's take a look at how that might work. I want to begin by giving you some background to the book. But first, this is the Russian Orthodox icon for uh, the prophet Jonah. And I appreciate that he's bald and white-headed. Somehow that, I think that... <laughs> works. I like the look, Jonah. Jonah was a prophet to the nation of Israel uh, sometime between 800 and 740 BC. Those of you who know the history of ancient Israel, you'll remember 
that shortly after King Solomon died, the nation was divided by civil war, and that was around 930 B.C. So I think I'm going the right way for you guys. We're going to progress through time this way. So about 930 B.C., Solomon, before that was King David, about 930 B.C. is Solomon. Solomon dies, and there is a civil war. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, there is a rebellion against him by Jeroboam I, and the kingdom of Israel divides. We're now 130, 140, 150 years later, about 800 B.C. to 740 B.C. This is the period where Jonah was active. 750 to 740 was his most active period. The southern part of the country was known as Judah. So here's Israel. The southern part after the Civil War was known as Judah. And it was the home to the capital, Jerusalem, and to the great temple. And over time, Judah proved to be hit and miss in their devotion to God. It depended often on the level of the devotion of the king and on the activity of the prophets in Judah. The northern kingdom was called Israel. And they were even less diligent and consistent in their devotion and worship of, of God. And this is where Jonah was active. Now, Old Testament prophets had an interesting job description. They were sometimes full-time court ambassadors or court advisors as well as prophets. So think of them like part of the president's cabinet, but also a part-time preacher. Other prophets were regular civilians, but for some specific season or some specific occasion, they would serve as an itinerant preacher either in the countryside somewhere or in the capital itself. We don't know much about Jonah either way. He was probably closer to the former. But we know that Jonah lived and preached during a time of mostly growth and ascendancy for Israel. The king was probably Jeroboam II. I'm going to show you a chart in a minute that I realize in the first service you're not really going to be able to see. Sorry about that. But other people will argue, some will put him 10 years later under another king, but it was probably Jeroboam II. There had been ongoing disputes between Damascus and Israel for decades. So again, picture Judah, it's divided from Israel here, and then above Israel is Damascus and the territory around it which Damascus ruled. And to the north and east of that is the, the kingdom of Assyria. There had been border wars and conflict between Damascus and Israel, mostly won by Damascus. So Israel had lost territory and money during that period. But in early in Jeroboam's reign, Assyria had swept through and devastated Damascus. And that left something of a power vacuum. And Jeroboam and Israel swept into that power vacuum and they reclaimed some of their lost territory and prestige. Still, there was very little reason to celebrate in Israel Everyone knew that the real enemy was Assyria, who was larger and more powerful and by far more ruthless than Damascus, perhaps than any empire in history. So let's look at the timelines real quick. I told you, I'm sorry. So on your left is Judah in yellow. On your right is Israel in green. And it just lists the kings for you. It gives the years on the far left, as you see, and then the king, and then how they ruled, evil or good, according to God's law or not. And then the prophet that was active. You'll notice again at the very top, Judah was ruled by Rehoboam. This is right after Solomon. And you go over to Israel. Israel was ruled by Jeroboam, who was evil, evil. And if you look down Israel's list, you don't get a whole lot of good, do you? At the very bottom of Israel's list, you'll notice Jeroboam. 
782, 753, something like that. That's when Jonah's ministry began. Again, left side Judah, right side Israel. You notice where he puts Jonah. I think he's a little higher than that again under Jeroboam, but he's also active under some of these other kings. Here's what you need to know about this timeline. Even if you can't read the words, I want you to notice the big maroon line at the bottom and then nothing after that. That's when Assyria eventually does come in and sweep Israel away, and I mean literally, obliterates them and deports them to other territories to keep them under their thumb. Jonah is prophesying, and we'll have more to say about this later in the book, but Jonah is prophesying only 30 years before this happens. They don't know that this is coming. This is a time of relative good fortune. All right, having said all of that, let's read the first chapter of Jonah. We're only going to focus on the first six verses today. But let's read the first chapter so you get a, a feel for the, the story. I'm going to read off the screen, but I'd love for you to look at your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, if you go to mygateway.life, the scripture is on that for you. That's our app here at Gateway. So go to mygateway.life and you'll see the scripture. It's laid out for you. Jonah chapter 1. And let's stand together out of reverence for God's word. I want you to notice that he jumps right in. Nothing about time, space, no introduction. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Hebrew scholars will say that you get something in the original language that you don't get from this phrase in English. In the Hebrew, they personify the ship. It's as if everyone in the story knows that God's up to something dramatic except Jonah, because it reads like the ship wanted to give up and just break up under the storm. Because the ship realized, I've had it. God, this is, God's up to something. I'm just going to quit. All the sailors were afraid. And each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck. where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up. Call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, and this is very noble, instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they couldn't. For the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. 
Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. And now that for which Jonah is most famous, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You may be seated. This book doesn't have an introduction like most of the Old Testament prophetic books do. This is so-and-so writing during the reigns of so-and-so. It begins with a bang. It jumps right into the action. In fact, some scholars have suggested that because it has no intro, it reads more like it was originally part of a larger historical book. Perhaps it didn't stand alone as an independent work when it was written. That's one of the reasons I said last week that I believe the author of this book intended to write history. The word of the Lord came to Jonah Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it. Nineveh was one of the largest cities in the world at the time with well over 100,000 people, maybe 150,000 people. It was the center of life and trade in Assyria and sometimes its capital. It was very near the modern-day city of Mosul. Interestingly, some Hebrew scholars believe the translation we just read, go preach against it, suggests more involvement by Jonah than the original Hebrew allows. Here's what I mean. One translator suggests that this phrase should be translated like this. Inform them that their wickedness has become known to me. In other words, Jonah, you just show up, open your mouth, and I'll do the rest. Now, given all that we know about God and all that we know about his prophets, we're shocked when we read verse 3, and that's what the author intends. The author wants to grab mine and your attention. To the original reader, I think it would have read something like this. The great God of heaven and earth spoke to his prophet Jonah and said, go to that wicked city of Nineveh and tell them that their great wickedness has become known to me. And Jonah, the prophet of the great God of heaven and earth, the man who had spoken God's word to the nation of Israel, well, he ran in exactly the opposite direction. He disobeyed God as hard as he could. We don't know exactly where Tarshish was, but it was probably somewhere on the coast of Spain. So instead of traveling approximately 500 miles north and east from Palestine to Nineveh, Jonah heads due west 2,000 miles to a Phoenician seaport in modern-day Spain. So look at the map. Again, you're going to have trouble seeing it. But if you look at the top of the big map in the back, you see Assyria up at the top. The very top, kind of middle, you'll see Nineveh. You see Judah down, kind of bottom left. It's not on your map, but above Judah, between Judah and Damascus. That's the territory of Israel. That's where Jonah would have lived and would have been active. Follow the little arrows, if you can see them, up around the Euphrates River, across the Euphrates River, and then up the Tigris River. That would have been the typical trade route. That's where Jonah should have gone. Instead, he goes down to Joppa and takes a left, and then the inset shows you what he did, and that inset, of course, is a very much shrunken down. He's going to take a, a sea trip 2,000 miles over to the coast, and do you see the outline of Spain there, over to the coast of Spain, where Tarshish probably was. Joppa was the seaport for Jerusalem, and it corresponds to the modern-day city of Jaffa. The ship Jonah took would have needed to stop several times on this journey, both to trade and to resupply. In all likelihood, it would have taken nearly a year to make this trip from Joppa to Tarshish. No doubt, there were many times during this trip 
when Jonah could have reconsidered his current course of action. He didn't. At some point out on the Mediterranean, a terrible storm blew up. The pagan crewmen were terrified. They began to cry out to their God. They knew what these storms could do to a ship. Don't miss this detail. The pagans were all praying. The prophet was not. He doesn't want to talk to God, probably because he doesn't want to hear God. He doesn't like what God has to say. In fact, Jonah is asleep below the deck. Perhaps he was in shock. Perhaps he was depressed. Maybe the emotional strain of contorting his spiritual and emotional self had left him drained. A shell of himself. I want you to think, for instance, of those times for some of you when you've heard a parent or a spouse say of you, I just want my daughter back. I just want my husband back. Whatever the cause, the pagan captain of the ship wakes Jonah up and implores him to pray. Again, don't miss the irony. God's prophet has to be implored by a pagan captain to pray. I was reading an article a couple of weeks ago about how God uses circumstances to move his people and to accomplish his will. One of the author's points was the same point we're making today, how intimately God is involved in our world. He used Jonah as an example. I want you to listen to what he said. I'm going to quote him. Quote, the Lord turned Jonah's voyage into a teachable moment. He learned, Jonah, that the plans of a sovereign God are not so easily thwarted by the stubborn will of a puny prophet, end quote. God is intimately involved in our world. We see this involvement from the very first sentence of Jonah's story. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. In other words, God speaks. God speaks. He communicates himself. In the case of Jonah, he called Jonah into his service. More than that, he gave Jonah a specific message to give to a specific audience. And I know for a fact that some of you have felt that same kind of press on your heart and mind. You have felt God speak to you about something. I got an email from someone this week who pointed out how interesting it was to them that Jonah never doubted that God was speaking to him. He just didn't like what God had to say. God spoke throughout the Bible. His people heard him speak through gentle whispers, through dramatic circumstances, through visions and dreams, through the voice of others, and in many ways. God spoke. Pause for dramatic effect. And he still speaks today, just like he did in Jonah's story. Seriously, I know how crazy that sounds to some of us, but I honestly believe it. I honestly believe that God has spoken to me several times in my life. God has spoken to me through Scripture. Exactly the right thought for me introduced at exactly the right time because what I read on a particular day may be coincidence, but I don't think so. God has spoken to me through what I've called thought bombs. Some of you have had this experience. You're minding your own business. You, maybe you aren't praying. You might not even be doing anything spiritual at all. Maybe you are. And for me, it's like a thought from outside of my head deposits itself, fully formed in my head. I can almost sometimes feel it like an arrow shooting into my head. And there it is, interrupting me. Those of you who know mine and Diane's story, you know that before we came to Northern Virginia to be part of this fellowship, we love being part of this fellowship, thank you, we 
pastored a church in Boston, Massachusetts, and it was an inner city church in a lower income neighborhood. I felt very, very called to that ministry. I felt like that's exactly and specifically where the Lord wanted me to be. I felt like that as a young man. And I felt that because, you know, I noticed in Scripture, God has mercy for everyone. We're going to talk about that through the story of Jonah. God loves everyone, but whenever he gets an opportunity to single out who he really is passionate about, he always lists the poor, the widow, and the orphan. And so I thought, I want to go where poor people are because I want to help them because that's where God's heart is. And I have to tell you, I considered myself incredibly noble in doing so. So Diane and I moved to a really difficult neighborhood in uh, the city of Boston, and we had three children there. And internally, I felt a little bit like a hero. I felt like I was doing these people a favor. At one point in my ministry there, the church that I had grown up in in South Carolina asked me to come down and preach. And this was an awesome opportunity. This church was very large when I had grown up there, and it had become a mega church. This is a huge church in South Carolina. At the time, they had ministry was televised, and when the pastor called me up, he said, I'd love for you to come down and preach for us one weekend. Remember, we're going to be on television, so there'll be tens of thousands of people. What an opportunity for you, son. Yes. He said, I want you to come down and tell us about your ministry in Boston because you grew up in this church. Okay, Dr. Walker. So I go down to preach in South Carolina, and the title of my sermon I still remember, The Miracle of the Church in Boston. And point number one, Diane and I moved there. I know. I know how arrogant it is. So I did this message. There were several people who came up to me afterwards shaking my hand. That meant so much to me. Super humble. Thank you. To myself, I'm thinking, I know it did. I go back to Boston, and one day, not long after that, I decided I was just going to do a prayer walk around the neighborhood near our house. Lord, what do you want us to do? How do we reach this neighborhood? So this is me doing a prayer walk around our area. And I'm literally, I'm walking around the neighborhood, praying over houses. Some, I don't know most of these people. The ones that I do, I really pray for them. I see some kids out, I pray for them. I'm minding my own business. I'm praying. I'm doing God's work. I am God's hero in the city. And I started thinking about the miracle of the church in Boston. And I'm thinking, I can't help it. I'm thinking to myself, you killed it. It was awesome. And all of a sudden, thought bomb. It's all pride. What do you mean it's all pride? This is the best decision I ever made. It was noble. It was honorable. What do you mean it's all pride? Of course, I knew what he meant instantly. I had gone there to be a hero. They didn't need me. They needed Jesus. God has spoken to me in thought bombs throughout my life. God's also spoken to me in strange urgings. Years ago, we were part of a small group here at Gateway, and, and I'm going to encourage all of you this fall to get connected to a small group because you can't really go deeper in your relationship with Christ unless you do. So we were driving one night. This is Diane and I. She's sitting beside me. We're driving to our small group, and we decided we're a super spiritual couple. We're going to pray for the people in our small group on our way to small group. So we're driving, and we start praying for couple number one. And as we're praying for couple number one, another family comes to my mind who doesn't even go to our small group. So we pray for couple number one, we pray for the husband and wife, and then we pray for their children. And then Diane starts praying for couple number two. Can't get this other family out of my mind. Go away. We pray, and I'm agreeing with her, yes, amen, Lord. And I also pray, you know, he won't be such an idiot. And then there's a single mom in our group, and we pray for a single mom and her kid. And next couple, we're praying for them. The whole time, I can't stop thinking about this other couple. And 
we get really near to the place where a small group is, and I say, Diana, I, you know, I, the whole time we've been praying, I've been thinking about this other couple, and I feel like we should pray for them. So we pray really quickly, and afterwards, I think she, said, she suggested, you know, why don't you call them before we go and say, okay. So I ring them on the phone, hey, this is Ed, hey, look, just want you to know, Diane and I were on our way to small group tonight, we were praying, and I just couldn't get you off my mind. Silence. Hold on a second. Okay. Rustling. 30 seconds, rustling. Another phone picks up. I just wanted my wife with me. Okay, well, Diane and I have been praying for you. We wanted you to know God put you on our mind. Thanks. I lost my job today. Maybe that's a coincidence. I don't think so. God is intimately and lovingly involved with our world and with us. He knows when you lose your job. And he's in it. One of the ways we see that is he speaks. Now, when Christians suggest that God speaks even today, the culture thinks we're crazy. And I, for one, don't blame them. I think it's crazy and it's happened to me. Some of you know that you may have heard that Joy Bayar, one of the hosts of ABC's The View, she was talking about Vice President Pence, actually. She suggested that hearing from God is not spirituality, it's mental illness. It is mental illness, unless it isn't. And the story of Jonah is powerful testimony that God speaks to his people. I know that for some of us, this is just a completely foreign idea. I get that. I know you may feel uncomfortable with this kind of belief. I don't want to remove that discomfort. If this is real, and I'm convinced it is, you need to feel uncomfortable. You, your world needs to be expanded. And others of us have gotten so accustomed to hearing these kinds of things and reading stories like Jonah, they've lost their power, really. So we end up not actually expecting God to speak. After all, why isn't he speaking right now into the trouble I'm having right now? Why isn't he speaking? Why doesn't he always speak? And I get it. I have that question too. And if I were any good at this preacher thing, I'd try to answer that question, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to for two reasons. First, I have that question myself, and I, I don't have a good answer. And secondly, because that question is a good question. That means you take God seriously. There are many times that the psalmist cries out to God, hey God, right now would be a good time for you to say something. Listen, our God is intimately involved in our world. One of the ways we know it is that he speaks. And if you're not hearing him, let him know. Another way that we know God is intimately involved in our world is that he moves circumstances to accomplish his will. He has storms come up out of nowhere. A number of years ago, our gateway was meeting at middle school in Herndon. We met at a middle school in Herndon initially because there was nothing out here. You need to know that your home, your current home, was occupied by crickets and fox. There were 400 homes in South Riding. Nothing else was here. If you think there are no restaurants here now, you should have been here then. Nothing. And this area started to move, and God had given us this property. If you're new to Gateway, I'll tell you that story another time. That's our favorite God story. But we knew that we were going to be out here and this was our ministry and you were going to be our people. And so we needed to look for a place to move out here to start worshiping out here. And there's nothing out here. None of you wanted to offer your homes to a bunch of people. So I asked two people to look for me for a place for us. And one of them came to me and suggested, how about Mercer Middle School? And you know Mercer Middle School is over in Stone Ridge. And I said, no, we can't do Mercer Middle School. Why can't we do Mercer Middle School, Ed? Because it's been up for a few years and I know a church used to meet there. And the principal is probably a very good principal, but he's uncooperative with churches, which is his prerogative. And he doesn't let churches use 
classrooms or space. So this church met in the auditorium and their children were in the hallway. And that's unworkable for Gateway. We had more children than they did. That was not going to be possible for us. Well, can I at least call them? No, don't bother. Well, can I just call them? Okay, call them. But it's a waste of time. They call them. And there's a brand new principal. And he makes an appointment with us for the next week. He wants to see us. I don't know what to think. So I go over and take the whole staff with me. We walk into the office. He walks over to me. Hi, my name is so-and-so. So glad you're here. I was telling the staff this morning, we need a church in this building. I used to be the assistant principal at Pop Falls High School. Now I've moved over here to be the principal. I love that. We had a church over there for years. I love that kind of cooperation. Let me take you around the building and show you the rooms that you can use. Some of them we'll give to you for free. Okay. (laughs) Maybe that was a coincidence. I don't think so. I think God stirs circumstances around our lives. People like us to move us in his way and his will. Okay, perhaps it's just circumstances. Perhaps it was circumstantial that a storm arose around Jonah's ship. Perhaps it was just circumstantial that Jonah was thrown overboard and swallowed by a giant sea creature and carried to safety. Perhaps, but I don't think so. I think God is intimately involved in your world and your circumstances, and I mean right now. And God is lovingly involved in our world, much of the movement of spirituality in our world today. And there's a lot of spirituality in our world today. Much of it owes its energy and its impetus to pantheism. So I'm going to be way overly simplistic because we don't have time to get technical, but at the risk of being overly simplistic, pantheism is the idea that all things are essentially one. We're all kind of united. We're all the same thing. In pantheism, God in one form or another is equated with the universe. We're all a unity. Pantheism is the framework behind both Hinduism and Buddhism. Jonah was decidedly not pantheistic. Neither was Jesus. God was very, very distinct from himself. He knew it because God spoke to him. And God told him to go preach to the capital city of Nineveh. And here's the deal. Assyria represented a very real threat to the very existence of Israel. They had already wiped out several of Israel's neighbors. And they were the most ruthless warring people in the history of the world up to that point, and perhaps in history, period. We're going to hear more about that in coming weeks. Why do you want me to go preach to the Ninevites, God? What happens if they repent? Why would you want that? Why don't you call down fire from heaven and blow them up? Because I love Jonah. That's how I relate to the world. I extend mercy and grace to everyone. The Greeks and their ideas about God, Jonah, they got it completely wrong. I'm not random and capricious. The pantheists totally missed it. I'm not removed and I'm not a vague everythingness. I'm very specifically love. And Jonah, I love you and I love your enemies and I want you to love them too. It was hard for the people of God to get this. To even get a picture of this, wasn't it? They kept missing it over and over again. And not just Jonah. Until Jesus. (laughs) Through Jesus, God came near. Intimately near. Through Jesus, God spoke. And through Jesus, God loved. In fact, Jesus' best friend, John, summarized Jesus' whole life by saying this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes 
will not perish, but will live forever and have eternal kind of life right now. There are, of course, serious challenges to us really believing that God is intimately and lovingly involved in our world. The challenges come primarily through our circumstances, don't they? Specifically, when we're going through the worst of it. When things are not going our way. When dreams are dying. When we have cancer and healing doesn't seem to be happening. Or any circumstance within which God seems to be silent. We need him to speak and he is silent. We need him to move and it appears that he does not. How do we believe at that point that God is lovingly and intimately involved in our world? But that's exactly the call on our lives. That's the challenge of faith. I know that's no answer. But listen, answers don't help. In those circumstances, you and I don't need answers. We need Jesus. And we have him precisely to the degree that we do the work of faith. Here's what I mean. I talked about Tom at the beginning. Let's suppose I was able to speak with, with clarity and certainty into Tom's darkness. Would it work? Would it end the turmoil for Tom? Let's suppose I knew the answer. Hey, Tom, God isn't speaking to you right now because your current despair is blocking your ability to hear him. I don't know that, but let's say that that was the truth and I knew it. But you'll be fine. In fact, in a couple of weeks, Tom, you'll be better than any of us because you're going to be ushered into eternity. And then, by the way, this is going to work out really well for your family in the long run. Does that message make all of Tom's confusion disappear? Well, maybe, because it's Tom Bellino, maybe. But it, it wouldn't last. It would very likely come back. When the pain got unbearable, the confusion would come back. And besides, how should God communicate that message to Tom in a way that would guarantee that Tom would know and receive it as God? We don't need answers. We need God. That's why God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh. They don't need answers. They need God. And they don't know him. God is intimately and lovingly involved in your world, in your life this morning. He's speaking. To some of you, he's speaking very specifically. And he's moving through circumstances. He's arranged things. He's brought someone somewhere, or he's, he's brought someone into your life, or he's taken someone out of your life, or there's some really difficult circumstance, and he's moving. He's here. And for you and I, the work of faith is to believe it. Let's pray. So, Father, we want to build our life on this. We want this to be the starting point and the foundation for our actions. Look, Lord, for some of us this morning, the foundation has gotten cracked. There are gaps in our ability to live in this, to believe this, to cling to this. And we have surrendered ground to fear or anger or doubt or confusion. And we need your help this morning. Speak, Lord. Move. Others of us, Lord, have never known you. We don't know the press of your hand. We don't know the marvel at the arrangement of circumstances around us. We don't know your voice. I pray today we cry out to your love, to your mercy. We ask you to move today that somebody's heart would be changed. 
that it would be softened, that we would step into faith. And Lord, your people this morning, we acknowledge we don't need answers. We need you. So we cling to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to end with a hymn. So we need to end today, before we go, by just offering our love up. Let's stand. Choir, let's start it together. Hear that again. Ooh. I see your power in the moonlit night where planets are in motion and galaxies are bright. We are amazed in the light of the stars, it's all proclaiming who you are, your Father, thank you for this day, and Lord, you are beautiful. I pray that your presence would go out with us today, out into the world, uh, to our jobs, and uh, to all the things outside of this place, that we would take that uh, with us as well. Go in peace, everyone.